Well, Father, we are just so grateful that we can sing praises to you. Christ is mine forevermore. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son. He is our hope. He is the object of our faith. He is the object of our adoration. And Father, we want to be like him in every respect. Father, I thank you for the teaching we are to receive and the call to become like him, to love as he loved, to love what he loved. So, Father, be with us as we hear this message, and may we receive it as a gift so that we might be like our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Sally and Ted met each other in college. They fell in love, lived together for a season, and then they decided to get married. And, and Ted made it very clear that I will marry you under one condition. We do not get married in a church. He was an atheist and a very angry one at that. And Sally had no real religious background, so she went along with it. And they got married, lived a relatively you know, happy life, um, brought two children into the world. She worked as a nurse. He owned a small business that seemed to be rather successful. But Sally always had a spiritual curiosity about her. And one day, a, a co-worker just invited her to study the Bible with her during the lunch hour. And, and so she did. And, and really, over a period of about a year, she began to put all the pieces together, and she reached a point where she embraced the Lord Jesus. And then she told Ted that she wanted to get baptized. And Ted flipped out. Any peace they had in their marriage was shattered there was a growing, building tension. And finally, Ted just says, I want a divorce. And, well, Sally knows the scriptures. If an unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. And so she relents, and, and she hopes that it will be as amicable as possible. So they divide custody of their teenage children 50-50, no child support necessary. They divide all their assets. And she's hoping to maintain somewhat of a good relationship, and the divorce happens, and shortly after the divorce is finalized, Ted announces to the, his teenage children that um, he's getting married to his very pregnant secretary. They also move into a, a house that is much larger than anything Sally and Ted thought they could afford. But no matter, you know, she tries to be happy for him as he moves on to his new life, and but then there's more tension with the teenage children. They don't like the rules that Sally has at her house. They enjoy the freedom at Ted's house, and they let their mother know. They also make veiled, passive-aggressive st statements, such as, you know, if you didn't become a Jesus freak, you and Dad would still be together. Eventually, they tell Sally that they would like to live at their dad's house, full-time, where at least they have some semblance of a family. Again, she relents. Two months after that happened, she gets a, a letter from Ted's lawyer asking for child support. Now she is starting to figure out what's going on. Through some conversations, she found out that Ted was actually seeing a secretary for the last five years of the marriage. During the divorce, he successfully hid 
all kinds of assets. And that through the power of suggestion, he was poisoning the mind of his children so that they would want to be with him and not their Jesus freak mother. So what would you tell Sally to do in this kind of situation? Sally, this is what you do. You hit the gym, go on a diet, so you can fit into that revenge dress. You know what? You need to sit down and tell your children the truth about their father. You know what? Go through all of those photos that you have and find some dad bod pictures of Ted and put them on Instagram. Right? Find some. I mean, this is just not right. But what would Jesus tell her to do? Well, we get the answer in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand it back. This is one of the hardest sayings in the Bible, isn't it? If you were to tell someone, love your brother, well, of course you're going to love your brother, right? Brothers don't shake hands, brothers hug, right? You love your brothers. If you were to say, love your neighbor, well, of course I'm going to love my neighbor. No problem there. Sometimes it's hard for me to do. But when you say, love your enemy, love someone who is hostile to you, I mean, that's, that's another level. And Jesus digs in further in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you for even Sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, this is all part of the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and he does it with a twist, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the future, the kingdom is to come, is unlike the kingdom that is right now. When Jesus comes back, there will be a reversal. Remember? Right? The, the poor will be blessed with a great inheritance. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are hungry will be satiated, right? There will be a reversal, and part of this reversal is an unexpected love, where those who inherit this kingdom will love in an unusual way. See, Christians are distinguished by our love by a love that is not anchored in the recipient, right? It's not anchored in what somebody does because God's love is not anchored in what we do, is it? God's love is anchored in 
him. He loves you in spite of you, not because of you. And to become like Christ, it is to learn how to love people in spite of them, not because of them. And where is that most tested? When you love your enemies. That is the hardest commandment. It is the hardest commandment. And it can only be done because what is impossible for man is possible with God. This is living proof that the Spirit of God is within you, is your ability to love like Jesus, to have a love rooted in the Holy Spirit work in your heart, not the other person. So what we're going to do today is we're going to just have a simple outline here, right? The command to love your enemy and the cost of loving your enemy. We're going to look at what God calls Christians to do. What distinguishes us? It is our love and a love that's capable of loving your enemy. So let's look at the command to love. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so after pronouncing all these beatitudes, right? There's four beatitudes, four blessings, four woes. He gives us command to love your enemies. And so the question is, right, who are your enemies? And the context makes it clear. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for their fathers did to the prophets. And as you recall, Jesus had some tension with the Pharisees. He healed a man on the Sabbath. That was verboten. And then they conspire to kill him. So he goes up to the mountain, he prays, and the Lord helps him to discern who is to choose as the 12 disciples. These are the ones who are going to carry on his ministry past his own death. And then he addresses the disciples in a multitude, but mainly the disciples, preparing them for what is to come. And what is to come is if they crucified me, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. You will have enemies. You think about the early church, one of the great enemies of the early church was a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, right? You look at the Hindu nationalist who, who martyred Graham Staines. Years ago, we saw the footage on a North African beach where members of ISIS paraded Christians in front of them and beheaded them for all the internet and the world to see. Christians have enemies. Now, the natural response is to do what? If they pull a knife, you pull a gun. If they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue, right? It's escalation. In fact, when we look at the situation with, with Sally, with all that Ted did to her, there are certain elements in this society would say, you got to stand up for yourself. And this Christian teaching for her to love her enemy, that just facilitates abuse. We live in a world with such a, a, a fixation on justice 
that the command to love your enemies seems wrong. And yet Jesus is commanding this. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. And you guys know the different words for love. That love is the agape love, right? It's the love that God has for us. It's the highest form of love. It's a love that's rooted in the person who loves, not the person who receives the love. Your love for your enemies, that's an intentional statement that he makes. Your love for people who are hostile to you cannot be rooted in anything within them. It's rooted in the work of God within you. And this love is not just like a passive love. Like some people will say, well, I love my enemies. I just don't have to like them. Right? I, I have this passive love for them. The fact that I don't act out my revenge fantasies is proof of my love. But Jesus says, and do good to those who hate you. Right? You actually try to find ways to bless them, to to serve them, and, and he'll explain a little bit more about what this means later on in the message. And then he says, bless those who curse you, right? They curse you, you give a blessing back. Now, I read one of the best books on evangelism I've read in the last decade. It's called The Unlikely Converts by uh, Randy Newman. We're going to give some of it to some of the leaders for the Shepherd Summit. But it says, evangelist who traveled to college campuses and he would say if you became a christian in the last six months raise your hand i want to talk to you and for a phd project he would just interview all these uh, unlikely converts and there's one convert named talia uh, talia used to decorate her dorm room with posters with all kinds of profanity on it and she enjoyed swearing and cussing in front of Christians. She just loved putting them on the spot. And during one conversation she, she, with Randy, she, she said this. I, one time I, I called a, a friend of mine who was a believer, and I said, guess what? He said, what? I just became a Christian and gave my life to the Lord. Really? Nah. And then she cussed him out, calling him a stupid idiot and using all kinds of profanities. And do you know what the Christian did? He said, go to hell. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> right? Go to hell. And she converted. Does that ever work? He blessed her. He blessed her. Because you know why? When, when you look at the mission that these disciples have, our goal is to do what? We just heard about this on Friday night, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We are called to reach our enemies, who are really God's enemies, and help them to be reconciled to the living God. You see, it's not like you can divide humanity into three parts, right? Where you have Christians who are friends of God, you have the enemies of God, and then you have these people in between, right? So we can go ahead and hate these people, but we're really going after these good old boys here. It's enemies and friends. When people hate their enemies, they're basically hating on their mission field. Does that make sense? These disciples are called to reach their enemies like Saul. So you bless those who curse you, and you pray for those who abuse you. Now, some of you might think, oh, I pray for those who abuse me. 
all the time. I pray, Lord, will you expose them for the hypocrites that they are? Oh, Lord, show them the folly of their sin, embarrass them, shame them, so they come to Christ. Yeah, you don't want to be that pagan, vindictive. But you might say, well, isn't it okay to pay for the destruct- pray for the destruction of my enemies? I mean, David did. I read it in the Bible, Psalm 69, 22 through 24. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. There you go. I pray that for my enemies all the time. Now, this is what you have to remember. David is always a special case. He was a type of Christ. He was the king of Israel. And his enemies were really, because of his position, God's enemies. David sought God's honor and God's justice. It's kind of like Jesus when he kicked out all the money changers. It was zeal for his father's house that was consuming him. He was concerned about God's enemies, not his enemies. David, honestly, like you look at how he was on the run from Saul the psychopath, and there were two occasions when he could have taken him out. On one occasion, he cut off the tip of his robe, and he was like, oh, I can't believe I did that. He was intentional about loving his personal enemy. Absalom, his son, totally turned on him, became his enemy, and yet David lamented when he died, just like he lamented when Saul died. There is a place for asking God to deal with his enemies. But you know what? That's dirty work that God can do with purity, right? He can execute perfect justice, and he will do that. So yeah, by all means, ask God to do that so that you can be free to live in in kind of a constant state of love where you want to see people saved. You want to see them blessed. You see, our enemies will get their due. That's why you have woe to them, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. And what is your heart response to that? Oh, well, good. All right. You see, the point of this is that when you're in a constant state of love and you love your enemies, it should be very difficult to become your enemy. If they become your enemy, it is only because of Christ and his message and his witness in your life. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, this call to love my enemies is just so overwhelming because I have so many enemies. You, you tend to have a knack for it. You make enemies freely. Somebody insults your best friend out of love for your best friend. That person who insulted them becomes your enemy. When that person cheers for the wrong sports team, they are your enemy. Your neighbor has a bunch of yard signs for the wrong political party, and you suspect that they tore up yours? Well, you tell your kids, at midnight, we're grabbing the toilet paper, be ready to unroll. 
So-and-so says something hurtful to me, well, they don't get the pleasure of my good company. My spouse is unkind to me, I will treat them as my enemy. And you know what that's really doing? That is weaponizing love. If you are to experience my love, you must perform according to the standards I have for you. You will be punished. It will be withdrawn from you. You will pay the price. But you know what? It could be that the issue is not your ability to love your enemies so much as this is a command that's given to everybody who interacts with you. Because you're petty, you're vindictive, and you're bitter. You have become enemies to other people. And that's why they become your enemies in return. And if that's you, that's something where you lay off the retaliation. You leave it to the Lord. You let him be the one to deal with it. But you live in a constant state. You see, if you don't love your enemy, what's the alternative? You go down to their level. You, you lose your witness. And this is hard and it is costly as it brings us to the cost of loving your enemy. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So the hardest command just got harder, didn't it? To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So to state the obvious, striking cheek got slapped. I mean, have you guys ever been slapped before? Or have you ever slapped somebody? We don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> but the thing with being slapped is there's, a, there's an element of humiliation in that. It's like you slap your galley slave. And so the issue here is really probably one of honor. When somebody insults you and slaps you, what do you do? Do you rise up and defend your honor? He says, no. You turn the other cheek. Now, I do want to give some qualifications to this because sometimes people think, that because of this, you turn the other cheek, it is not okay to defend, let's say, a nation. So Ukraine would be in the wrong for trying to fight off a Russian invasion. But Romans 13, 1 through 6 makes it very clear that it is a legitimate option for the government to wield the sword to defend itself. Secondly, notice it says, turn the other cheek when you are the one who is being insulted or injured, right? That's not something that you ask other people to do. That's something that you do. It's not necessarily loving to watch a third party get beat up. A number of years ago, uh, my family was driving back from California after Christmas, and we stopped in Liberal, McDonald's, Liberal uh, Kansas because there's a McDonald's with a play place, right? We know where all the play places are between here in California. Talk to us if you want to know. And while we were there, um, this eight-year-old with a mustache took a liking to my six-year-old, Amberly, and began to pull her hair, scratch her, and the whole time, 
His mother is just on the phone. Just doing that. And I'm like, you know your, your son is terrorizing my daughter. Oh, hey, stop terrorizing. And it became very clear that nothing was going to happen. Now, I considered my options. I can crawl into the play place and find the kid. But I thought, that might not be a good look if it hit the local papers, right? So I called up Nathan and Jacob and explained the situation and then calmly told them, you know what you need to do. (laughs) And that was the most fun they've had at McDonald's in a long time. (laughs) But all that to say, there is a place for defending the weak, right? But when it's you, what's your reaction? What is your reaction? You know, the goal is to love them in return. In verse 29, And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Right? Somebody comes, and these are missionaries who are traveling. You know, in that Mediterranean climate, the nights get really cold and the days get warm, and so naturally you'd wear layers. And, and, and clothing was actually a fairly precious commodity. So you're traveling and somebody says, give me your tunic right now. So you give them the tunic or give me the cloak. And then they say, I want the tunic too. You give them that as well. You don't resist. Isn't that interesting? And then he says, give to everyone who begs from you. Now we know from elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Giving alms to the poor was, was standard issue back then. This is likely when your enemies come to you wanting something from you. Ted goes to Sally and says, you know, the reason why I wanted child support is because I'm cash poor right now and I need a loan for about $10,000 to help my business make payroll so I can make it next month, right? And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Sally was defrauded in the divorce. He hid the assets. What should she do? Do you see why this is the hardest command? I mean, you want to take it literally. You might want to take it seriously. But this is the command that is very tempting to try to qualify to death. So people will say, give these objections. Uh, We can't take this too literally. One commentator stated that if we were to take it too literally, especially the cloak and tunic part, the church would become a nudist colony. It was in the commentary. I wrote it down. So, and again, there are some common sense nuances and qualifications, right? But let's not explain away the heart of this text. And that is to give agape love to people who don't deserve it. Secondly, people might object, well, how can I love my enemy if I don't feel like it? There's often this perception of love that love is is kind of this feeling, right? I need to fall in love with someone. Uh, It's something where you feel warm and you feel compassion and maybe a certain tenderness to them. And you think, if I don't feel that, then I'm just faking it. Well, I got something to say to you. 
fake it till you make it. You fake it till you make it. You love people through your actions. And your actions are triggered by a desire to please the Lord, and they are an object of faith that, Lord, I do not feel like doing this. I want to spit in their drink. I don't want to give them fresh water. Sally is thinking about all the things she'd love to do to Ted. I sure hope that baby miscarries. I hope he and his wife get a divorce. I hope our children learn to hate him. Sally's not proud of those thoughts, but those are there. So what's the alternative? Should she give into those thoughts? Or pray for that family, pray for the souls of the children, seek a blessing, congratulate them on the new life that they brought into this world, give him a new outfit. It's not his fault that he was born in adultery. You bless them, you love them, you do good to them. Our Kent Hughes shares a story that after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the most, unpop- most unpopular man in the former East Germany was Erich Honecker, the, the premier. He reigned East Germany with an iron fist. Don't believe me? Just read all, read all those books or watch all those movies about people trying to get over the wall and balloons and other things. Well, the Communist Party rejected him too, and he was kicked out of his villa, and, and he couldn't find a place to live. Well, enter Pastor Uwe Holmer, who was a director of a Christian help center north of Berlin. Now, he knew that the Honeckers were homeless, and he didn't feel right about putting them in this special center for people who were struggling to find a place to live. So he had Eric and Margot Honecker stay in his house. Made him extremely unpopular. You know what was really interesting is Honecker's wife, Margot, was the head of the education system for 26 years. And eight of Uwe's 10 children were rejected from higher education because of their Christian beliefs. And yet here they are living in his house. And everyone's wondering why. Well, the answer is there was a work done in the heart of that East German Christian. Don't qualify it to death. Don't wait till you feel like it. Now, you might try to rationalize it by saying, well, doesn't God, you know, God doesn't love his enemies, so why should I? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, right? There you go. He hates his enemies, I should hate them too. Well, you have to look at those passages I think in the broader context of Scripture, and see that there are many passages that point to his, his love for his enemies. In fact, later on in Luke 6, 35 through 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, God does judge his enemies. 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does not desire their destruction. Now, I am not a universalist, and the Bible does not teach universalism. Clearly, some people do go to hell. The Bible also teaches the sovereignty of God and salvation, that God permits that to happen. There's no mistakes there. But the Bible is also very clear that the reason why people go to hell is because of their sin, not God's choice. People go to hell because they have made God their enemy. And God is not rejoicing when they do that. He doesn't desire their destruction. He has a predilection to love. Now, and he has his reasons, some of them we may not know, but the consistent testimony in Scripture is a deep love for the enemy. You look at God's love manifested in Paul. Paul, who was an enemy, was persecuted, was pers- became the enemy of the Jews. In Romans 9, 1 through 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These are the brothers who are persecuting him, and he says, if I can go to hell so that they can go to heaven, I would be willing to do it. Is that not love? Yeah, he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ, but he still loves them. I think part of the reason why is because he understood that he was an enemy. He was the one who held the jackets so that some of his companions could put Stephen to death. Remember Stephen's response? Acts 7, 59 through 60, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. All this to say, he was not looking at retaliation before he went to glory. God did not send us to earth to make enemies, but to reconcile enemies. I think finally, the, the big objection to this is this is just not fair. This is just not fair. These people are going to just get away with it. You know, God will deal justly with them, but really, when you think about it, if you really want fair, if you really want fair, you'd be experiencing hellfire right now. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. If you want fair, that's what it is. And a lot of times when people think about justice, they think about the wrongs done to them instead of the wrongs done to God. And if God is willing to hold off on judgment for a while, if he's willing to give that kind of grace, then we can as well. No sin done to you is as bad as it's been done to God. That's just the truth. And Jesus, when you look at this, you look at what you're called to do. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. For those, Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Didn't Jesus do all that? He was insulted. He was more than slapped. He had his clothing taken away. 
and yet he blessed. He did healings on people who were not grateful. He loved them in spite of them, not because of them. And that's the type of love that God calls us to. 1 John 4.21-5.3 says this, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, you know what, Pastor Dave, I just don't love my enemies. I hate them, I always have. And I don't know how I can change. Well, what is impossible with man is possible with God, right? I think about Talia, remember her? The very vindictive person, she basically alienated everybody in her life. But one day she was walking by this woman on campus who was just handing out these note cards that asked the question, would you like to know how to go to heaven? And she, for some reason, thought, yes, I would. And so she asked to talk to the lady, and she actually picked this lady because she didn't burn a bridge with this lady. And she eventually came to Christ and was welcomed into that community, and all those friends were excited to bring her in right? If somebody is going to be an enemy, it has to be their choice, not ours. Christians are to live in a constant state of love. Does that make sense? We don't weaponize love. We live in a constant state of love. If people become our enemies, it's because they have chosen to do so. And part of that is because we recognize that they need grace just like we needed it. In Titus chapter 3, Paul gives what I think is a compelling biography for everybody who names the name of the Lord. Starting in 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That, that was true of me. Is that true of you? Still can be true of me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He loved us when we were unlovable. And he loved us and made us more lovable, right? And one of the ways that he loves us is by freeing us from the toxic drive for retaliation and bitterness and gives us an ability to love people out of the love we've experienced in Christ. And the more you meditate and you think about God's great love for you, in spite of you, the easier it is for you to love other people in spite of them. If you're called to love your enemies, and if you can love your enemies, you can love anyone. 
That is the call of following Christ, and that's the reality of the king we serve. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is the hardest command. I confess I have fallen short in many ways and at many times. And I know that I'm not alone, and I pray that you will just lead us to a quiet repentance where we will be driven to love other people as we have been loved. And Lord, I pray for anybody who's on the outside looking in who has not yet experienced that kind of love, that they will look to you, surrender their lives, surrender their souls, that you will change and transform them. And Lord, collectively, that we will be a truly loving community, one that deeply desires to see other people experience the greatest blessing, which is saving faith in your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the clear teaching of Jesus. Lord, we have been taught, but we need your Holy Spirit to obey. Please help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.